Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Stacy Aviva Flint was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. A spiritual seeker from a young age, from a family with few ties to organized religion, she was approached by a pseudo-Christian cult at the age of 16. It was the ICOC, now sometimes going by the name ICC, the ICOC, International Churches of Christ, not affiliated with the mainline Churches of Christ. It was run by a man named Kip McKean, and she was attracted to the way that it presented itself, that it had high moral standards, and she loved the charisma of the leader and the other members, and the belief that their exclusive truth could save the world. Stacy joined. She became one of the leaders of one of their churches in Nairobi, Kenya, and also in Cleveland, Ohio. And she says that there was emotional and psychological control that eventually led to forced friendships and marriages, alienation from family and financial exploitation, loss of individual identity in favor of their what she calls kingdom mindset, that was designed to keep a person constantly seeking the group's approval by increasing the number of people you recruited into it. Stacy was constantly moved around and all of her relationships were orchestrated and she was manipulated out of jobs and college choices. Stacy finally left after 18 years in the cult at age 34 after marrying a member and having children. And as Stacy began to realize she was expected to use many of the techniques on her children of withholding food, ignoring discomfort, and physical discipline, and along with the international outcry of members describing their years of abuse, that was all too much, and she left. I noticed when Stacy got in touch with me that her middle name was now Aviva, and sometimes she uses it as her first name, and my limited knowledge of Hebrew knows that that's the feminine form of aviv, which means spring. So it seemed to be that it was a time of rebirth and renewal once she left, that she found her spiritual home and independence of thought, as she puts it, when she and her children converted to Judaism. Stacy is a national writer and speaker on Jews of color, anti-Semitism, and the parallels of early Zionism with the early Black Zionism and Back to Africa movement. And this week, Stacy takes us broadly through her story. In a few weeks, check out the next interview, where you'll get to hear more about her time on a mission for the group in Africa. It's an incredible story. It's powerful and intense, troubling and very surprising. So definitely check it out again in a few weeks. Here's Stacy now. Well, I want to welcome Stacy to the show today. It's really nice to be able to talk to you about your experience and your experiences because there is your group experience and transformational experience after, and I hope we can get through some or most of it, and then if we need to, we can continue on another time. So can you introduce yourself to the people who are going to be listening and watching that what who you are and uh, what's going on in your life right now. Okay, great. My name is Stacy Flint. 
And I spent 18 years in the International Churches of Christ from the ages of 16 to 34. Um, I left the group at 34 um, with a, a young child and married to someone from that group. And after that took a probably decade or long more time to kind of process what I had been through and to recover, uh, I ended up refining Judaism and which really improved my critical thinking skills. And um, so today uh, I am um, and Jewish um, and um, I really see the, the time that I spent in that organization um, as a time that I think that anyone could um, easily fall prey to such kind of, of, of groups that um, just offer you friendship and, and love right at a critical time in, in your life. But then you realize um, sometime later that, wait a minute, what choices am I making and, and what is this group's uh, agenda really about? Right. Okay. And so you said refinding Judaism. So I was curious about that, the refinding. So um, it was interesting because uh, I spent some time as a missionary, um, a foreign missionary with the organization in East Africa. Mm-hmm. In East Africa, I was exposed to many different people. Um, the Moonies were there actually starting there and, or a branch there. Um, and there were Israeli um, business people there. And one of my students, I taught English as a second language, and one of my students was Israeli and was about to go back um, to the army. And uh, just that experience made me think about kind of the origins of, of Christianity and that it came from Judaism. And so when I went back home, I added Jewish studies to my major as an undergrad and kind of kept that as my kind of um, secret for many years. So I studied that for like off and on 20 years, kind of on my own as something that the cult couldn't access or take away from me because it was an academic setting. So it was like, oh, it's in school. So, um, and started to work in the Jewish community for many years. So I always had a way to keep it away from, from, from them, from them um, touching it. Okay. Oh, that's so interesting because sometimes people do find that they find something that they're holding on to that connects with their mind in a different way or gives them a different kind of feeling or a feeling they're wanting to have, but they know that they have to kind of build some sort of protection around it so that it's not taken away so that they're not um, told that it's going to be evil in some way. And then they have to, then they have to uh, think poorly about it or dismiss it. And so a lot of people do that. They preserve what they think is best for them. And, and I think that that's a great survival mechanism. And I'm glad that you were that you were able to do that. You also said something so interesting about the timing. I get asked a lot about what kind of person gets in, involved in a cult. In fact, I, I get asked what kind of person joins a cult. And I say no person joins a cult because you don't know, right? You don't know. Right. So zero, zero people join a cult. But um but the timing does play such an issue. So I'll say sometimes it's the kind of person, but really it's when that plays such a big role. So at age 16, if you don't mind talking a little bit about what that time meant and why you were maybe more open to it at that time. So at, at 16 years old, I had kind of come to kind of the end of actually a spiritual search. Um, I was raised by my grandmother and my great-grandmother who did not 
actively participate in any religion, although they said that they were Christians. And so at about the age of seven, I decided that I wanted to look for God on my own. And I would, I can't believe it now, but they would let me go out and walk down streets. I mean, four lane highways I would cross to go and visit um, places of worship where I thought that I could find God. And I, I read my a Bible that was in my grandmother's, great-grandmother's room, and I would always open up to the Old Testament, what I call the Old Testament at that time. Right, right, yeah. I went to a, um, a, a religious establishment. I was looking for those people and that God, and I would go, and I'm like, this is so curious. This is not these people, and this is not the God. And so by the time I got to be 16, I was very frustrated and um, um, I, there was turmoil in, in, in my family situation of, of not being raised with my, you know, regular nuclear family. So there was a lot of angst about that. And I wanted a feeling of belonging and I wanted this spiritual experience where my family really was, they, they were very um, just kind of in name only, not actually participating in anything. Um, and so I found um, two people in a McDonald's when I was 16 and it was a black woman and a white woman. So to me, I thought that was beautiful. And that was the essence of what true spirituality is, that it can bring people, diverse people together. And they were studying the Bible and they invited me to, to participate and come to a Bible study. And I felt like that that was an answer from God, that this was a sign that he was sending me that, okay, your search is over. You finally found it, you know, go for it. Mm-hmm. It was oh, a very how- tumultuous time for, for me because I had given up hope. Right, right. Okay, so I just think about people also who are raised with a certain kind of tradition, but it just doesn't feel like enough for them, like you're saying, and and that there's this piece that's missing. For others, it's perfectly satisfactory, but for you, it wasn't, and you were searching for something else, and it also seemed like you were searching for that kind of connection and that kind of family um yes. where where were you raised where you were wandering the, the streets that is just amazing where were you yes i was raised in cincinnati uh, ohio southern ohio um and so with um a grandmother and a great-grandmother so that situated me into the person um the people in my life were born in like 1881 and 1927 uh-huh. that's right. the kind of raising me. So it was a very, I had a very traditional uh, mind, mindset. Um, and a lot of my conversations already were with much people much, much older than me. Right. So being able to connect, I guess, with people who were younger, people who were peers, was probably very appealing for you. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. People who spoke a similar language, you know, to you. Okay. Even though I think it's incredible to have that exposure to previous generations and, and a lot of people are not lucky enough to have that, but still you want there to be a balance. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So, so uh, I'm curious what was appealing about it. Um, I want to hear a little bit about your story about when you first got into it how did it feel? What did it offer you? What were you excited about? So what appealed to me was uh, definitely the multicultural aspect that, that I saw. My family was um, always very uh, uh, 
multiracial and bicultural and that the, the surrounding community around me, that wasn't normal. And so to see a group of people that reflected the kind of community that I came from felt like normalizing, like, okay, this is normal for people of different races to be together. Um, I think another thing that was really appealing was the purity. Uh, there was an aspect of everything was so pure. No one cursed. There was no overt sexuality. And I had just been in, in an environment where um, those things um, were um, very, very hard to find. And I, I'd come to really disdain um, my family uh, of origin. Um, my mother um, was a, a single mom who had been a, a addicted to drugs, and that's why she didn't have custody of me. And I I'd never met my father. And so I was always kind of reminded that I didn't come from the best uh, of, of family lineage. So even within my own family, I felt very ashamed of, of who I was and who my, uh, what my parentage was. And, and my whole goal in life was to be so different from them and to make choices that were, were, were different. And so to see that was pure and they could laugh and have fun and, and no one was cursing and there was no impropriety. Uh, surely this is where God is because these people are so um, committed to, to purity and decency. And, and that's something that I, that I hadn't seen. And so that really, really was prominent. And they wanted me. They wanted to spend time with me. I got continual calls. Stacy, come to this event. Stacy, come to that event. I mean, I'm 16 years old. I can't drive. People are picking me up and they're taking me places. And I'm having, again, I'm having fun and there's no impropriety. And I'm like, this is life. This is how it should be. Um, to the point that I, I think when I was about 17, um, I almost let them go to court to take custody of me from my grandmother. Um, I just felt like I was in a situation that wasn't good and that these were, these were probably much better caregivers. When I turned 18, my grandmother was, was kind of like, you've changed much too radically and um, you seem to love these people, so why don't you live with them? So I came home and all of my belongings were in black plastic garbage bags. And, and wow. the only thing that I could do was call my church friends and say, come and get me. I don't have a place to live. I just graduated from high school. I was 18 years old and I was homeless. Uh, I'm just that visual of you coming home and having all of your things in black garbage bags. And not only that, my, my, we had taken in one of my best friends from high school whose mother had put her out and she was staying with me and she had helped my grandmother pack my bag. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. I mean, that, that is just so multi-layered emotionally. Uh, okay. So, right. So I think not only are you drawn to these people and they're caring for you and they're your community, but also then by default, you needed a place to go. And so they kind of rescued you or, or gave you that sense that they rescued you. And maybe to a certain degree they did during a time where you didn't have other options. Mm -hmm. I want to pick up from there. Uh, but I just wanted to say that when I was in undergrad in Boston, um, I already knew a little bit about cultic groups. And I remember seeing some of the front groups from the Boston Church of Christ. Yeah, the Boston uh, movement. That was, yeah, that's part of us. 
the Boston movement, right. And, um, and they had all these front groups and, and with different names that were part of the student union. And I remember going to Dean Thornburg, uh, just that name popped into my head. He was the Dean of Marsh Chapel at Boston University, where I think Martin Luther King Jr. had studied. And um, so there's a statue of him out in front. And I remember going to him and I said, have you heard about this group called the Boston Movement? Because I, I had someone in my dorm who got involved, was going to the Bible talks and, and now she, she dropped out of school. And they told her that um, if she couldn't go to the, to the Bible talk uh, and instead needed to study for her finals, that she was making a choice between getting good grades and having a relationship with God. And I said, do, do you know that this is on campus? And, um, and he quickly closed his door and he said, it's a huge problem and we're trying to figure out what to do. But as soon as we sort of figure out who they are, they change names that they yeah. go by and it's really hard to kind of track them down. And the leader, Kit McKean, yes. uh, someone who's very clever and is charismatic and a lot of people are getting involved. So already, this was in the 80s, there was already this concern. Um, and so I have that, that little window from the other side of going, something's off here. Something's really off because it's taking people off course. Yes. Okay. So I just want to let you know um, that, you know, it's interesting because people can approach this from different directions and that was my direction and you, you were in it. Yeah. And so what was it like to, to meet the people there? Were they also kind of getting on track or were they able to stay on track? What did you notice about the people there? So um, I joined in 1986, uh -huh. right, as we were still the Boston Movement, and then a few years later became the International Church of Christ. So I was doing that time. So I noticed that um, we would be um, segregated into different um, segments of people. There were many people who came in who were clearly emotionally disturbed, who were clearly maybe on the spectrum, and, and they became kind of like just your base workers, and you were just a keep them happy, keep them coming and, and paying their dues. And he didn't put in too many responsibilities on them other than, than coming and giving money. Mm -hmm. And you had your next level of people who would be marked for leadership. Those people could be good looking, they could be um, uh, smart, they could be well, come from wealthy families um, or have maybe really impressed um, the leaders with their recruitment uh, of people. Um, so maybe I thought fell into to that crowd uh, on that, uh, that caveat. But so about a year into the group, I was tapped for leadership to be trained to become a Bible talk leader. And this is where you got very intense training, basically on how to break someone down. If they came in and they professed to be any kind of Christian in any denomination, your goal was to take them through a series of studies to mm -hmm. them, first of all, that they really didn't love God, that their religion, um, wherever it was in the Christian spectrum, truly was not the true religion. And not only that, but they truly were not Christians. And so there, was, there were techniques that we used um, and arguments that we use to break down a person so that someone could come in and go I, as a really strong Catholic or a, a Jew and go, you know, that's who I am and go through these series of 
probably about three or four studies and come to the conviction that they were not a Christian and that their family and even dead relatives were also either going to hell or burning in hell. It was very um, insidious. And then you talk about getting on uh, off track. Those the people who were considered leaders, um, you could quick, you could very easily get off track, especially if you didn't have a family of origin that was um, um, watching you or caring for that you had strong ties to. If you for any reason had a loose association uh, or damaged relationships. Um, um, or, or very wealthy, or, or, or something that they, they, could, they could use, especially that would draw in other people, you were, were controlled. So you were told, like I originally, when I graduated from uh, high school, I was the first person in my family to go even to uh, college. And so I wanted to apply at, to Cornell University. That's where I wanted to go. And they told me, no, you cannot apply to Cornell University because there's no other disciples on that campus. You need mm-hmm. the church. So I made my dreams smaller and I studied in my hometown state um, university. Um, And after a year of being in university on full scholarship, they convinced me to go to Kenya. Um, So I uprooted all of my scholarships and everything. And I leave to go to New York City at 19 years old and be homeless in New York City with them, traipsing around, sleeping on different couches and going to Kenya on a mission trip. They told me this was a mission trip. So I guess in your mind, you think, oh, if I'm going on a mission trip with an organization, I have some kind of backing. I have some kind of support. Right, some protection. They're going to watch out for you. Right. Exactly. I spend all this money. I buy my own plane ticket. I get donations. I pay like $1,200 for a plane ticket. I sell everything I own because they said I could only come with two suitcases. It was known as this two suitcase challenge that a true disciple gives up everything they have and you can live out of two suitcases. So here I was, I was down to two suitcases. I sold everything I had, given up college and transferred to a school, an American school in Kenya. So I get to, to Kenya and they put me in a hotel. And I'm thinking, okay. Then they give me a bill. Why am, you told me to come here to help you start this church. Why are you giving me, putting me in a hotel and then giving me the bill? And finally I told them, I said, I only have a hundred dollars in my pocket. Oh, this caused a firestorm. I had about four or five people in my room chastising me. Why did you come here with a hundred dollars? And, and I'm like, I'm 19 years old. You told me to come and I want to, I want to do something special for God. I did not know that I also had to support myself. I I spent $1,200 on a, on a, on a plane ticket. Um, so that began my being homeless in Africa, East Africa as an American for two years. So I would carry one of my little suitcases around with me and I would sell my American clothes because that was popular. Um, and I would sometimes walk around all day long trying to invite people to our congregation um, and sell my clothes to be able to come home to pay my hotel bill that evening. Okay. So, wow. I mean, you paint such a picture and I, these details are so important. I'm only imagining, and I think anyone can only imagine what it was like for you, first of all, to be in this hotel room, to be so far away from home, to have 
forfeited, as you said, I, I'm writing down a lot of the things that you said that you had to make your dreams smaller. It's a really interesting phrase. Um, and that you gave up Cornell, then you're at the school and then you gave up the scholarships and all for this sort of greater purpose, uh, thinking that they're, they were going to show their appreciation for all of your sacrifice. Right. And right. I mean, that would be an obvious assumption. And then you're being chastised, then you're homeless, wandering the streets, and then still feeling like you were part of a mission or how did you, how did you sustain that feeling even with all of the stress and the uncertainty of not knowing even where you were going to sleep that night or if you were going to get food that day? Yeah. Well, we had a system called discipleship where you had someone who was over you. It's all like a multi-level marketing system. So you were always talking to this person and checking in um, with this person. And it was a combination of like ad hoc therapy, um, motivational speeches, and um, kind of confession. Um, You never felt, I never felt like I was alone or that my thoughts were my own thoughts because I knew that I would have to report how many people that I talked to, where did I go that that day? Did I study uh, my Bible? Did I have any errant thoughts that I needed to report? So I was so caught up in making sure that I could meet that obligation to this person who was supposed to be um, helping me to be more like Jesus. Um, And then my mission, which I totally believed in, that we were the only true church in the world, that we had the only true gospel, and that we were... not only saving people's physical lives, but we were saving their spiritual souls. And I bought into that a hundred percent. So I was very, very um, committed to that. And so when there were times when I would feel down or I would feel sad, I would just, you know, you begin to to, to feed yourself the same information that, that they're giving and you talk yourself back into mm-hmm. I'm saving souls. And if no one else would do it, I've got to do it. And and I'm going to be rewarded. And so at one, at some point, I didn't need them to tell me what to do because I bought into the philosophy so much. I was going to tell myself the same things if I got off track. I was starving, which I often was. Even if I was sick, I almost died there. I had malaria, typhoid, parasites. Um, wow. I'm going to talk myself back into I was on the right track. When, okay, when you got malaria, typhoid, and everything else, I can only imagine horrible things, very uncomfortable things. Where did you go for help? How did you get treatment? Well, for the malaria, um, I was staying in one of the pastor's hotel rooms, this very fancy hotel, which was not my hotel. Because my hotel ended up being a brothel. Wow. Um, I found some anti-malarial pills, and so I took anti-malaria pills. I didn't go to the hospital. Another time um, I was at a, a United Nations party. Uh, somehow I had gotten invited to a United Nations party and the Russians were cooking. And I ate some of the very delicious food. And within 30 minutes, I was vomiting violently. And in about another hour, I was hallucinating and um, going into convulsions. And finally, someone from the, one of the members from the church took me to the hospital. African people and paid my medical bills to get a shot, get an IV. And um, no one from the church came to, that I know of came to see me or offered to take care of me. And 
that was the one time in my life that I, I thought I was dying. You know, you hear, I, well, I hear that a lot. And probably with the people you're talking to now and sharing your story with, when you are really in need, uh, when, when you're in the hospital, when you're really suffering, when people feel suicidal, that is not when people from the group show up. Right. And, uh, and you have to rely on yourself or you have to rely on the kindness of strangers. Uh, and, and there are a lot of reasons for that within groups that, you know, they think that you either brought it on yourself. Uh, and so we don't have to, you know, kind of feel compassion about that, but you can feel very much alone. And especially because you're being so self-sacrificial for the group, you would like there to be some reciprocity here. Can they just at least show their appreciation by showing they care, uh, at the very least, at the very least. Mm-hmm. So, okay. And the other part is that you talked about how you would, you had the teachings in your mind and uh, the ways that you kind of confirmed that what you were doing was the right thing and that you said those things in your head. And people will often ask me, you know, if, if someone is running a big group, like I guess Kit McKean here, he's running a big group, he must be a really busy guy. And not necessarily because they're the ones who sort of start the machine going and if they can have people who keep themselves sort of or or measure themselves by a certain standard then they're going to be the ones who feel like it's their duty to keep with their commitment and to do the right thing and to save people so it's a lot of other people doing a lot of the work yes Uh, right and so that was your experience too yeah and we were um indoctrinated so well um, that we knew how to ask someone a question and get them to divulge things that they probably would not necessarily divulge to other people. We also knew how to plant um, suspicion of themselves. So I was always suspicious of myself. And even if I had done something wrong because I had been gaslighted so much, so I remember one time I was just very, very tired and I was just staying in, in my room, just resting and because I was just exhausted from all this running around and doing things for the group. And so one of the women from the, the church came over to my um, where I was living and, and she was checking on me and I told her, you know, I really don't feel uh, very well. And this is what's going on with me. And so she started to ask me, so have you been engaged in any sexual sin? Have you been with someone? Have you seen someone? And and all these questions kept going on. And, and I said, no. Then it's like she would ask them again. And it got to the point that I'm like, have I? Maybe I just don't remember. Had I done something wrong? It was all so confusing because I was like, wait a minute. I'm trying to figure out how this happened and when it happened and who it happened with because by that time, I was so doubtful of myself because of the way she had questioned me. Uh, I came to, to, at one point, pretty much believe, yeah, I must have. And is this the group also that had the sin study? Yes. That, okay, yes. right. I'm now remembering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Which was used as ammunition against you. Okay, right. Because everything is recorded or written down, all your sins, mm-hmm. all the things you've thought. Yes. Uh, Right, everything that could be considered a sin. And I guess 
the longer they can get your list, then the more it can be used against you or the more you don't, you're taught to not trust yourself, like you're saying. Exactly. Okay. And then they don't have to take responsibility because really in retrospect, you know why you were exhausted, Uh, right? (laughs) It was very clear. But no, it can't be because we put you in this horrendous situation that would exhaust anyone and overwhelm anyone. Um, But it must be because of something you've done wrong. Right. I wonder how that thinking got turned around. Was that only when you were thinking about leaving? And maybe we can go to that part of the story because I know I'm sure you have so many stories and I hope we get to talk again. But what helped you kind of transfer out? Because I know you talked about leaving when you were 34. So that's a lot of commitment to that. So what was the transformation? What helped you get out? So um, definitely coming back from Africa, finishing my um, college education, um, getting married and um, going to graduate school. I had exposure to, and the excuse to read outside material because we weren't supposed to read outside material. There were TV shows and movies we weren't allowed to watch. So there's whole parts of pop culture that that I'm just now catching up on or never experienced because it's like you're told, no, you can't um, do that. And so when I came back from Africa, I that's when I had the, the biggest pings of, of doubt because I was very hurt uh, through those experiences. And I was very much like, if I can keep a part of myself to myself, I will do that. And so that's where I think, you know, Judaism kind of got um, that piece of me that I kept hidden. Um, but I think after I got the experience of getting married um, and not being able to have one person from my family in my wedding, old who was going to be in my wedding, not being able to go back to my hometown so that anybody from my hometown, even friends, could be uh, in my wedding left a really bad taste in my mouth. And part of my getting married was uh, a a desire for freedom. Um, When I got married, um, it was like more insidious. So now you wanted to know things, not just what I was thinking, but what was I doing with my husband and how were those experiences and, and was this happening and that happening? And I'm like, no, I don't care how much cold experience I've had. These are things that are not, between anybody else but a husband and wife. And so they violated that. And then when I had my first child, I was told to, oh, uh, don't feed them all the time and you know, put them on a schedule and let them cry, cry it out and all these kind of things. And, and I just had this vision one day of my child growing up in this organization. And I was like, there's absolutely no way I want my child to grow up in this organization. And um, in 2003, there was a big letter called um, Honest to God by Henry Crete, who was a, an evangelist out of the London Church of Christ. He was a very big and well-respected leader. And he wrote like a 40-page treatise about the organization and what we've done psychologically and, and, and economically devastating to people. I gave thousands of dollars. At one point, I was giving 22% of my income to this organization at different times. And he wrote this letter and so many of us around the world, because we weren't just in America, we were in Russia, we were in South Africa and, and China, and we were all over the world. And this letter reverberated 
throughout the world like a clarion call that someone was validating our experiences and the things that we had been said to us and the things that we had given up and how hurt we had been. And it was an evangelist. And we knew that this person knew the intimate details and the whole organization kind of like exploded. Um, there were town halls and we were yelling and screaming <laughs> at people over our hurt. And um, some places uh, it, it seemed to go well. In some places you could tell that they were just putting a Band-Aid on it. They just wanted us to be quiet or just forgive and forget. And that experience opened up so much for me. And I was also working in a Jewish organization at the time because of my academic experience. And I've been studying a lot of, of uh, Jewish sources on how to deal with injustices because I was working with a social, Jewish social justice organization. And so the combination of that letter and just all the things that I've been reading in Judaism about how you deal with injustice empowered me to say, no more. I'm not going to live like this. You're not going to treat me like this. And if I want to, I can actually leave. And I don't think my soul will be the worst for it. And to be able to say that and actually believe it and not have a panic attack, because I've thought it before and just had a panic attack, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. I'm just going to get hit by a car or going to go to burst in the flames. It's so empowering. And um, I left at 34 years old, not knowing how to plan my own day, not knowing how to um, make friends in, in the real world, um, and never having um, signed a lease to my own apartment, um, or had so many adult experiences that now I, all of a sudden, at 34, I was going to become an adult who thought on their own. And it was the scariest thing in the world for me. That's something that a lot of people also say to me that they feel like children. And, it, and it's especially hard when they have children because they know that they need to be the adult in the relationship. They just don't know how to adult. <laughs> and and they, they have to learn to trust themselves and also find out whom to go to for advice and who to trust, yes. uh, right? It's a lot of those kinds of things. And, and you, um, you're also talking about not knowing how to make friends. It's, it was probably very confusing for a lot of reasons, especially because you were there during your formative years of making more adult relationships. Uh, and you had kind of Insta community, I'm sure just from being part of the group, but also, what do you talk about and what's okay to talk about and what are boundaries? Yeah. Right? Okay. I can only, from your story, I can only imagine that was a big challenge. So how, how did you learn how to do it? Oh, a lot of mistakes. Either being really, really quiet or a lot of oversharing and people are looking at you like, what, what are you going on? What's wrong with you? Because that was a hallmark of the group is that that's how we built relationships. You were introduced to someone and you were supposed to tell your whole story and you were supposed to become instant friends. And I realized that in the real world, you don't do that. Relationships take time, intimate details, trickle out at the appropriate time over lengths of time. To experience that um, felt very, very strange and odd. And then sometimes it's like, 
I had to pretend that I understood what someone was talking about because it's like, there's no way that I cannot have seen this movie or not have had this experience. Um, so I could quickly go read about it and go, oh yeah, ah, okay. Um, that's why I liked academic settings so much because it's like I can glean lots from books and have an academic conversation with someone so easily. Uh, it didn't involve real life. A lot of my time got spent in very academic and ethereal kind of um, atmospheres because it's like that's what felt on par because I could I could study and, and, and write and read and have an academic conversation. And so as long as I didn't have to go too much beyond that, um, I was okay. But it was the most challenging when people would go, so how did you meet your husband? Oh, so, and at one point, I think I was like probably in my 40s, I was like, yeah, I met him in a cult. And I think my husband looked at me like, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, that's true. We met in a cult. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which is an interesting thing because then you're inviting people to, a conversation that they might not know how to respond exactly. to and you have to kind of learn how to share your story yes. uh, and people are going to respond a whole variety of ways in fact I, was, I talked to a lot of people about how um, sometimes people give their opinion even though you didn't ask for it oh I would never get involved in the cult or you know like did I ask you for you <laughs> like that wasn't actually a question for you but for some reason you felt the need to tell me also just about uh, having downtime because it sounds like from your schedule, you were just going, 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 going. So coming off of that, how do you, how did you learn to just be or rest? That took the longest time because I would just freeze because not having something to do confused me, but I was just late for work. Cause I was just not that I was oversleeping, but I was just sitting, staring, trying to figure out how to live um, life. Um, I didn't like downtime. I always constantly wanted to go out or or to do something to fill um, that space. Mm-hmm. What really started to help me was reading. I started to read about about cults and about um, coercive control and and things of that nature. And that really helped me to process um, my experiences because um, being alone uh, and not having any thoughts was terrifying to me and not having someone that I could talk to to tell uh, my feelings or even my experiences with them without them looking like, what are you talking about? Who told you what to do at 30 years old? I mean. Um, so that was very, very frustrating and, and very scary. Okay, so I have I have two other questions, but I, I want to be able to also ask you if there was something else that you wanted to talk about. But my two questions are about the organization now, because I know there was the splintering, and I don't know, you know, you would know better than I, because uh, my information is from the 80s and 90s from this group, um, just seeing it grow. Um, but I'm curious what's happening to it now. And also being a parent um, and how your experiences have informed some of the way you raise your child, right? That um, sure, that there are a lot of decisions that you make because of what you've learned from your experiences. 
So first about the group and then about being a mom uh, and then whatever else you want to end with. So I know that the group kind of, like you said, it did splinter off. The main person, Kip McKean, was kind of uh, divested from the the overall group uh, in about 2000, um, the early 2000s. And then each kind of branch kind of uh, took off independently. And then there was kind of some merging back together. People like, oh, we want to kind of be kind of loosely affiliated with people. And then Kip um, garnered this power. He started uh, his own branch again, and it's called the the ICC, the International Christian Churches, now ICC. And he has a, a university, it's in, in LA. Um, and he is kind of starting all over uh, uh, again. And so in almost every city where there was one of the old churches, there's now a, a new mission team that's kind of been sent there to compete and kind of take over. And so here, like in, in Chicago, there is one of the former churches, and then there's one a section that's um, still connected with this, this new upcropping of Kip McKean. And they're very separate from each other, and they're, they're pretty adversarial. Um, and... Um, Okay, so he's still someone to be watching out for. Then, oh, yes. Okay. yes, if you look on his, um, he has big, grandiose plans, and he finds people who can carry out these plans. He finds people who are um, IBM, ex-IBM CEOs, military people, people with a lot of power, people with a lot of money, who can kind of front his plan. He has a, um, a um, he had a organization called Hope Worldwide, which was kind of like a, philanthropic arm that got into lots of different countries all over the world doing philanthropy, but it was also too that back door of missions and there was millions of dollars uh, and they did great work. I'm not saying they didn't do um, great work. Um, being a parent, um, being a parent has been very challenging because I went through a period of very rapid um, personal, emotional, and spiritual growth right at the time of having a a young child. This experience was overwhelming for my spouse, who um, um, had not really processed his own experiences. And so to see me grow and to change my mind on things or being open to new ideas and not being so black and white, it became very hard to parent. Um, during this transition, I uh, decided that I wanted to convert to Judaism and I wanted to take uh, our children. Um, and so the children and I became Jewish and my, my then spouse, um, didn't. Um, and as I did more and more reading, um, and more and more just really checking in, um, with myself, I realized that, um, much like the book by Jana, um, Oh, Yanya Lalich. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I love her. She has a, a theory of bounded choice. Mm -hmm. Book really, really helped me just kind of evaluate all the choices um, that I did and didn't make in my life. And I realized that even though I had left the cult, I was still trying to adhere to so many of the promises that I thought I had made because I wanted to be a person of my word and a person of integrity. But then I realized that I wasn't even my true self. And so the promises that I were, was making were, was not to myself. And I realized that I had no choice of who to date and to who to marry. And so my actually marriage was built on 
um, the system of the cult, not an adult loving relationship. And um, I asked to be let out of that relationship. And, and my spouse at the time said, said no. Um, and I, I finally um, walked out of the relationship because I was being emotionally abused and my children were being emotionally abused. Have your, your child who's a teenager come to you and say, you know what? I'm going to stop telling you all the pain that I'm going through because I don't think you're going to do anything about it. And at that point, I realized that I had another move to make and that even though I was physically out of the cult, I had stayed in a relationship that was still controlling me and was affecting uh, my children. So I'm a much better, better parent, even though it hasn't even been a year since I've left that situation. But I think I'm much better uh, of a parent. My children have seen me change thoughts, change religions, but they've seen me very, be very consistent that it is okay to grow and to change and to be authentic to who you are, to ask lots of questions. And you have the right to be in healthy relationships that want to see you grow and that they want to grow too. Um, so it's very uncomfortable to do this all while you're still parenting, especially parenting teens, um, because they see it and that they can, res I think they, res they really respect growth uh, and they really respect um, uh, honesty. And they can see when an, an adult is stunted in their growth. And if you're trying to tell them to, to, to grow and to mature past the point that where you haven't made it yet, you're not going to be able to um, help that teenager. You're actually going to stunt their growth and cause more rebellion because you're not going to be a stable force that they can bounce off of. That, well, these are, these are amazing ideas because even taking it out of the realm of having been in a cult and having a spouse, where that was still sort of your last vestige of it, uh, that's true of parenting in general if you can see right if you could you can see for yourself what's best for you and then make the decisions that support the self you want to be and the parent you know you can be and fully involved in your own life and and um kind of in touch with your own core so to speak as person um it's a very important lesson for children especially teens who are sort of getting to know themselves. But also what I'm hearing in your story is that even though there are a lot of things that changed, what you were able to do was still be you uh, throughout it, which is this nice consistency that your kids get to see that if, you know, just like when you get involved in a cultic group, you can become like those people and think like those people. And when kids see and when you see that you can you can adopt an idea, but you're you still get to hold on to the part that is you. It's just an addition or it's a shift, but there's still a core. And and that's a that's a really nice thing. I'm glad that you've had that experience and also that your kids have benefited from from seeing that. Really, it's very powerful. It's very powerful. Also, because they're going to get caught up with different friend groups and, you know, yes, and they're yes. high on certain personalities, but it doesn't have to become them, you right. know? Yeah. Okay. And so as we finish up, I mean, it's a total treat to talk to you and get to know you and yes, hear from you. your story. And so is there anything else that you 
wanted people to know that you either learn from your story or just to help them if they're coming out of a situation like this or um, if you are are able to be reached in any kind of public or social forum and you want people to know about that. Sure. Um, I can also always be reached through uh, Instagram and Twitter, Mocha Jewess. Um, uh, I am on Facebook, um, Stacey Aviva Flint. Um, I think it's important to, to get um, therapy and counseling and to be, be okay with teaching your therapist and counselor, giving them resources on, on cults, because this is a very specialized um, uh, area. And I found that a lot of therapists that I tried to talk to had no idea what it meant for a person to be in a cult and their their challenges with critical thinking and uh, codependency, but through that 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 cult uh, mentality. So I would often have to give them books by Yana or Steve Stephen Hassan or mm-hmm. um, so. But me reading first was much more important um, because it helped me to be able to go to a therapist and actually tell them my story and what I, and I tried to do that before and I couldn't articulate what was going on. And so I was getting counseling and therapy, trying to save a marriage when really what we needed to do was process the cult experience. So if you can find, people can find any books on, on cult, Steve Hassan, Yana, uh, and so many others, Robert Lifton, read those books and try to process your experiences. And then don't be afraid to share that with a therapist. Educate them because I know where I am in the Midwest, um, you, we do not have therapists that are uh, understand spiritual abuse and, and, and cults like you might have in, in Boston on the East or West Coast. Right. And I think it's an important thing to do too because if you then are working with a therapist, and you say, this is what I went through, and here's a book, or here are some articles. If your therapist is interested in learning about it because they want to be able to help you, then you can stay with that therapist. And if they say, no, let's talk about other issues because that's not their comfort zone, then you know you, you're not going to work with that therapist. Right, that's right, one right. way to find out, right? Right. Okay. Okay. So wonderful. Good, good. Good to, good to talk to you. And I hope we get to do it again soon. And I and I wish you well and for you as, as, a, as a woman, as a parent, as a person in the world who has learned about regaining strength and a sense of who you are and also surrounding yourself, it seems, with people who support the you that you want to be. Very nice. Thank you, Rachel. All right. I will talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much. One more, one more thing before you go. This is Jody. I'm also a fan of the podcast and I'm a subscriber. And every week I listen to Rachel talking about uh, how she needs some financial support for the podcast. And every week I think she needs to make a stronger pitch. And so I asked if I could help out and just say that I think this podcast, like all of you, is so much more than just entertainment or just a podcast. It's really a lifeline for people who are even thinking about leaving a system of control. So please don't fast forward through this quick announcement. I will make it fast. But each week she says, you know, if you can help the podcast 
And my rebuttal is everybody can help the podcast. Certainly, there's a very small handful of people who can't do anything financially, but most of us can. And whether that's a dollar a month or $50 a month, I was shocked to learn how much it really costs to produce a, a podcast of this quality and of this magnitude. And it's such a labor of love from Rachel. And so I am asking you as a subscriber, not just to hear that one more thing before you go and think to yourself, yeah, I really should support this podcast because I love it. The real critical component is for you to more than think that, more than love it. But right now, go to your computer, go to patreon.com and make a pledge of any amount. And truly, I'm saying to my friends and colleagues that I've never met that we can all do something. But don't let one more request from Rachel go by without actually going to your computer right now and making some sort of gift because we can all support this extraordinary work. And so we should. One more thing before you go. One of the things that Stacy said that stayed with me, among other things, is that when she got involved with this organization, she said she had to make her dreams smaller. That meant not going to Cornell or anywhere else that was in line with her lifelong goals and dreams. It is something I hear quite often from people who at very important times in their lives, especially during the years of transition from childhood into adulthood, that they were somehow derailed and that then they had to make their own dreams smaller and sometimes abandon them altogether. It's important to notice that this is one of the signs that someone is potentially involved with someone who is controlling them, or sometimes a sign that someone has gotten addicted to something. And it can also be a sign that people have gotten swept up into a movement or a group that's redefining for them what their life goals should be. And that oftentimes things that you are doing for yourself are seen as selfish because people controlling you want to use your resources and your energy and your time to further their goals. So another red flag to look for is that when you suddenly see your loved one or a really good friend having unquestioning devotion to a particular person or a group or a belief system, kind of a zealous dedication one where they won't let anyone question it or show them any kind of proof that maybe it isn't legitimate or that person isn't legitimate. And every question, no matter how innocent, is seen as an attack rather than just being an opening for an honest conversation. Also, the person you love who may have been a more open-minded and flexible and critical thinker now has very black and white thinking. So things might either just be right or wrong, People are either all bad or they are all perfect. And as we know, the only people who are perfect are the people in the group or the person they're in the relationship with. And everyone else is deeply flawed and misguided. And for some people, some of the signs are subtle and go unnoticed for quite some time. But it's still important to notice things like when the person you care about is suddenly very tough on themselves and they feel like they have to strive for perfection, and they feel so much shame and guilt about very small things and very naturally human feelings and behaviors, and they seem supremely driven to have to do things the right way and have to do them right away. You'll also notice a shifting in language, how the person speaks, 
Notice if they're using group speak or suddenly sound like the person who is controlling them. They might not only mimic their words, but they might mimic their tone. They also may become insulting and using the same words that their controller uses when they insult and talk about the family and friends in that person's life. Controlling partners and oftentimes cult leaders have a certain paranoia that they carry around with them because they want to be the most important people in your life and all others then are seen as a potential threat to that overall control and that overall devotion. So the loved ones and the good friends are suddenly under suspicion and somehow supposed to be seen as the ones who are getting in the way, who are trying to control them and manipulate them. This is extremely confusing for the person you care about because they are no longer clear about whom to trust. Another sign is there's great sensitivity and defensiveness. They get very triggered and easily angered by anyone who questions their new relationship or group, and they may lash out and might not be willing to sit down and have a conversation about it and not be willing to look at other sides and not be willing to even take a break for a few hours or a few days to step back and think about all of this and do some research. And it seems that the person you care about is temporarily unreachable and uninterested in knowing what's really true. It's very frustrating. And lastly, when a loved one is getting caught up with someone or with a group that is controlling them and they do not live with that person or with the group, at least not yet, others who spend time with them will remark to me about how often those who are controlling them need to be in touch with them and require them to be in touch. And they can check in with them many times a day, sometimes dozens of times a day. And they are supposed to do that to get advice about any decision that they are supposed to make that day and report back about any conversations they had and also any doubts they had and if they had any weak moments. And they're often given words to use to answer any questions that their family and friends have, kind of like getting the script to use. So if you see these signs or any other signs that we've talked about in other podcast episodes, please get in contact with someone who knows something about cults, who knows something about controlling relationships, who knows something about how to guide you and how to help you know what the next steps should be. About four months ago, a family contacted me when they realized their child had a controlling connection with an organization that went by a front name, so they never knew what it actually was, and at least not at first. And they felt like they were losing their connection to him, so they decided to go on a family vacation, and seeing as their son was able to go anywhere as long as he checked in a couple hundred times, it seemed, during the day with his controllers, his handlers, basically, then it was fine for him to travel. The family didn't berate him or criticize the group. They knew not to. They just gathered as much information as they could from behind the scenes and talked to him about other things, anything else, nothing that would cause tension. And the family actually went somewhere, not even on purpose, but it turned out to be a great thing. They went to a place that had very poor cell reception and no Wi-Fi. So there was no way for him to be in touch with this group or for them to be in touch with him. And he actually felt very anxious at first and was worried that they would be angry with him when they got back in touch and they would judge him and badger him for not being immediately reachable and that they couldn't trust him anymore. And he had also stopped trusting himself that he somehow felt like he needed their protection and their reinforcement of the message all day long. But then suddenly a day passed and then another day passed and... He was still not able to be in touch with them. 
and his family noticed a change. They hadn't realized how tense he was before, but they noticed after the second day that his shoulders relaxed and lowered. And he slept better on that second night that he had for many months. And then he could tell the difference and see what was going on. The pressure had actually been crushing him. So when it was time to go back home, he asked his parents to hold on to his phone and his computer for a while until he felt ready to have them back. And then, fearing that when he got his phone back that they would still be able to gain emotional control of him again, he decided to get a new phone number and get a new email address to make himself as unreachable as possible so he could feel free again. And he got his life back and it took so much strength, more than people realized. And honestly, he still struggles a bit with it, so he and his parents have come up with a plan that he was open to having me share. During times that he is feeling down or anxious and missing having that feeling of being connected to an organization that promised him all the answers and made him feel safe, no matter how false that safety was, he goes over to someone in his family and hands them his phone and his laptop until he feels strong again. And they don't ask any questions and he doesn't have to explain himself each time. Everyone understands. And during that time, he reads through the research that his family was able to get about the group so he can be reminded about how fraudulent it is and how manipulative it is and how much it destroys people's lives and had started to destroy his self-confidence and independence and his relationships. Turns out this group is actually a criminal organization posing as a men's empowerment group. And when he feels able and strong enough to handle if they were able to track him down and be in touch with him again, he asks for his phone and his laptop back. And he is proud to say that now he can go a few weeks without needing to do this and hopes to extend it to a month and more until that drive, the dependence, the high, the manipulation is all out of his system. And if he's listening right now, please know you have a lot of support. And there are many people who understand the ongoing struggle of pushing away this level of influence and control. And I join with all the listeners today to give you strength. Talk to you all next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.